Hello and welcome to CultureCast. This is Dr. Daniel Del Monte, uh, again continuing this series on the Enlightenment, a period in the 18th, 17th centuries that involved great political changes, also great uh, philosophical changes, and in fact the philosophical changes are prior and th- the foundation of the political changes. Now, last podcast, I discussed the uh, political revolutions that uh, characterized the Enlightenment and how it emphasized individual rationality and the uh, consent of the governed. So instead of having authority being vested in this mysterious, uh, distant, remote, elite class, you have instead authority being... uh, bottoms up. In a grassroots way, you have authority being based upon the rationality of the individual. You have things like capitalism, because capitalism allows the individual to use their uh, reason and to make their own private property. They're not just um, part of a feudal system where they're a serf working for somebody else. So, We need to continue this talk about the Enlightenment because in many ways uh, we're still going through these changes. We're still trying to uh, understand our our new political systems. We're trying to maybe identify vulnerabilities in this new emphasis on reason liberated from faith. Um, I'm not saying this is is the, uh, the end of history. There's that uh, famous essay by Francis Fukuyama talking about the end of history and how uh, liberal democracies have become the final stage of human political development after the fall of communism. Well, obviously, communism has not, has not fallen. And I will say that capitalism in our world now has become something that really is quite scary where you have uh, these behemoth companies like Amazon or Facebook, which is now Metaverse, um, that exfiltrate wealth um, out of nations. So they're multinational, and they, uh, they, they're very profit-driven. You know, they, they try to find ways to import cheap labor. They use labor in China. Uh, that's basically slave labor. Um, and they, they control governments. Um, so, and, and they have this global system of trade where people, individual nations can't make their own products. And there's a sense of pride that comes from being able to make your own products domestically. You know, making things in your own country gives you a sense of pride, a sense of place. Now we have this global supply chain where we have cars being made in like three different countries um, you know, parts come from China, they get made in Mexico, they get sold in America. So we have this system that is evolving, and we're still trying to unravel what happened with this Enlightenment, um, which is most poignant in France. Uh, you had Robespierre with his reign of terror, right? And if you didn't call someone else a citizen, uh, hey, citizen, it's like comrade in communism, uh, then you must be uh, part of the old guard and you must be uh, denounced and, in fact, killed. And there was severe persecution of 
many Catholics in France, which was formerly a very great Catholic nation, and some of them fled to England. And in fact, people in England, although they had the Anglican Church and there was persecution there as well, after the French Revolution, people in England became more sympathetic to Catholics and welcomed them. And there was actually a Catholic Renaissance um, with some great figures like Chesterton and uh, Newman uh, defending and converting to uh, Catholicism in England, which has gone through anti-Catholic persecution uh, with the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans didn't like the festives celebration of Christmas. They wanted people to have a penitential air during Christmas uh, and to um, not have, you know, a feast and, uh, you know, a roasted duck or whatever. But anyway, you have this very fascinating development and in this overall theme that I'm developing, it's going to tie into the metaverse, which again is uh, this virtual world that is created by the human mind. You can be your own avatar. Uh, you create whatever you want to be and you live in that virtual reality based upon the novel Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. That's where the idea of the metaverse comes from. Okay. Now, I want to talk about specifically ethics now in the Enlightenment, not the political uh, revolutions, uh, but although that's, that's related, but the issue of ethics, because ethics is a discipline about how we ought to live. Okay? Plato says that ethics is no small matter because it's about how we ought to live. Uh, you know, should we uh, pursue pleasure as our main goal in life? Should we um, try to make as much money as possible? Um, you know, should you tell someone the truth at all times, even though the truth may be painful and cause trauma? Um, you know, how do you deal with uh, an, an abusive parent? Do you take away their child? Is that okay for the state to take away someone's child? So you, you have these ethical issues that come up again and again, and they're very uh, controversial because ethics is not something that we can agree upon. It's not like mathematics where we can have this single precise answer. We have to uh, uh, negotiate and we have differences of opinion. Um, so how did the Enlightenment deal with ethics given this great transition from this religious faith-based world where um, you have man in relationship to God receiving revelation from God, which shapes our understanding of the order of being. Okay, the, the, the phrase, the order of being. What is, it, what is it, the nature of reality? Well, it's revealed to us by God. This, this is how we fit in. But now that's all taken away. We use reason alone without faith to try to develop a full metaphysics to try to, as Newton did, to reduce uh, the uh, complexity of the world to a simple set of mathematical formula. Now, um, by the way, Newton was actually a um, very uh, intense mystic. He, I guess he wrote books on the prophecies of Daniel. Um, so he was a very spiritual man, but he did have a system where he's reducing um, the movements of the astral bodies to just universal mathematical formula. Okay, so it's uh, also Descartes, remember, um, I think, therefore I am, is the foundational truth. So the human mind becomes the centerpiece, not some order of being based upon God's divine revelation. Okay, 
So how do you have ethics in this new setting, which is rational, which is naturalistic, which is secular? Okay, particularly in France, we talked about how uh, Spinoza, um, Spinoza's philosophy of rejecting the transcendent, uh, God is not outside of the world, God is imminent. Okay, and so um, we're now in this cosmos that is um, very naturalistic, God and nature are one. Uh, so the, the ultimate reality is nature with its laws, not some trans- transcendent being. And so we need to have a, uh, an adjustment in ethics in response to this huge paradigm shift from faith-based to rational-based, naturalistic, secular, from religious and supernatural uh, world. So... Uh, Pre-enlightenment uh, ethics is based upon God and the afterlife. So uh, it's uh, the idea that, you know, maybe divine command theory, uh, God commands something, and that's what makes, makes it a duty. You must do it because God commanded it, um, you know, and the, 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 the point of, of being good is to uh, win your reward in heaven, um, you know, this changes too with the Protestant Reformation with um, the doctrine of Luther, uh, sola fide, uh, so sola, sola, sola gratia uh, as well, o- o- faith alone, only, only grace, only faith. Because for Luther, um, the human being cannot be by ourselves righteous. We get righteousness through the merits of Christ. And faith in Christ that allows us to be saved. We have no merits on our own. So we can't be saved by works. So um, sola fide dispenses with the moral law. Luther actually said to sin boldly. He said, sin boldly, as long as you have faith in Christ, you will be saved. Um, so um, dispensing with the moral law. Um, now, uh, for, the enlight- for the pre-enlightenment you have uh, God as as the center of your life. Um, your chief good is God. Uh, happiness. This is coming from Thomistic philosophy. Your happiness is is going to be attained through uh, union with God. There's no other good that can fully satisfy the infinite longings of the human heart other than God. Um, and the goal is to have communion and to have the beatific vision of God in heaven, where you see God as he is. Right now, we're, we're behind the veil. Uh, we see through a glass darkly, as St. Paul beautifully says in his letters. Now, um, enlightenment is going to shift things away from the afterlife to this life. All right, so trying to be happy in this life, not trying to achieve something so that you can be uh, saved and go to heaven, but to um, build uh, happiness in this life. It kind of reminds me of uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche has some very um, kind of shocking quotes in uh, his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Uh, Zarathustra is this, is this character who, who uh, is central to this little, it's a very um, symbolic and poetical uh, work that Nietzsche wrote. But um, I'll give you some quotes to give you an idea of happiness in this life. Nietzsche writes, Body am I entirely and nothing else. And the soul 
is only a word for something about the body. So the soul is just a uh, way of talking. There's no uh, uh, real substance that is not material. It's all body. So we don't have a soul. If we don't have a soul, we can't go to the afterlife. Um, when the body dies, we die. And so um, the goal of life is to eat, drink, and be merry, or to try to be happy somehow in this limited time we have with the limited goods that we have. Okay, um, it seems like it'd be impossible to really be fully happy in this life, um, because it just there's limitations. No matter how good you have it, there are just, there are just limitations in this life that um, it seems like we're always going to want more. And that's why Aquinas said, we're not going to be happy uh, unless we have union with God. Augustine, too, um, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That's what Augustine said. So, um, anyway, the Enlightenment, going back to Nietzsche, uh, here's another quote that you might like. Um, A new pride my ego taught me, as I teach to men. No longer to bury one's head in the sand of heavenly things, but to bear it freely, an earthly head, which creates a meaning for the earth. All right, don't bury your head in the sand of heavenly things. Don't just hide and, and contemplate these heavenly things after this life. No, focus on this life, have an earthly head, and create meaning for the earth. So the Enlightenment, again, is more naturalistic, it's more secular, we're using human reason to discover the natural laws. We're not relying upon faith to have this uh, mystical vision, uh, and um, we're making rational decisions in our politics with the social, social contract, and now we have ethics that is more earth-centered, more secular, and trying to build up a, a, a heaven on earth. Okay? So um, part of this is a reaction to the religious wars that afflicted Europe for uh, many years, um, and people fought over um, different interpretations of Christianity. You have different countries where Spain is very Catholic, but it has its own internal uh, tensions, uh, of course, with the Civil War they had, uh, that's, but that's the 20th century. But you have um, France, traditionally Catholic, but trying to become secular and does become secular with the uh, French Revolution. And then uh, England was formerly Catholic, but then uh, you had uh, the English Revolution in the 17th century. You have Puritans, you have the Anglican Church, um, and uh, Portugal you know, is deeply Catholic. Uh, so you have these different wars and conflicts. Of course, you have the Protestant Reformation happening in Germany. Uh, you have this um, schisms happening and, and this unrest, often leading to uh, bloodshed uh, and this kind of showed the Enlightenment thinkers that maybe religion is not a proper basis for ethics. Um, because we have so many differences of opinion, we can't form any kind of stable um, ethical consensus based upon religion. And there's got to be another way. Maybe, maybe it's reason that is the basis of, of ethics. Because, um, you know, what, what do people say? Don't talk about politics or religion at the, at the dinner table. It's kind of an unfortunate truth because uh, we, we should be able to talk about these things, but... We can't because there's such a fragmentation and, uh, you know, um, we uh, perhaps have, ha- cannot, you know, develop a consensus ethically on religion. Um, people think of God in different ways. 
And so the divine command theory kind of breaks down because uh, what my God commands is not what your God commands. And what the other person's God commands is also different. Especially with Protestantism where you have sola scriptura, you have the Bible alone and no church. You take away that, sor- that source of unity. The, the, the Protestants break away from the Catholic Church and, and, and rely upon individuals reading the Bible alone. Sola scriptura. Well, it's Latin for only scripture. Okay? So these religious wars and changes suggest that maybe religion is not a stable basis for ethics. So you have a figure like Kant coming in, and he wants to try to make ethics into a science. Okay? So um, what does that mean? In his language, it means uh, science is a special uh, technical term for him that means this um, deductive system, um, uh, a body of knowledge that is objective and certain, that has um, first principles from which you can deduce the rest. Kind of like geometry, where you have first definitions and axioms from which flow um, further points. And they, did, they, they flow deductively. So when he says, make ethics into a science, the German word is Wissenschaft, and it means this, this deductive, objective, systematic body of knowledge. Ethics can't just be um, individual feelings. It has to be a science where, um, you know, you're not just throwing out your, your opinion. You're actually establishing a truth that other people have to recognize. Um, they can't just reject it. Um, so you can't, according to Kant, base uh, ethics as a science on just um, individual experiences. Uh, your experiences are your own. You can't generalize them from, uh, from yourself and apply them to other people uh, because you may find pleasure in a certain activity and you may say, well, this is actually good, but the other person may not find the same pleasure and so that's not something that can be um, obligatory for them. So your own experience is not um, definitive uh, for me or for anyone else. So experience can only give us a practical rule, but never a moral law. How do we get this moral law that is binding on us? We have to sacrifice and follow it as a higher calling. Um, now, if you have an experience about you know something being being good something being pleasurable, something working out for you. Well, maybe it doesn't work out for me. Maybe it's not pragmatic for me. So how can we go from a practical rule, which is for the individual, to a moral law? Um, well, you can't use religion, Kant says. You can't use um, even Jesus, Jesus Christ. You can't use this because, again, uh, religion and mysticism uh, yield different impulses for different people. So, uh, you know, for the Protestant, you're going to interpret the Bible in different ways. Um, you know, you're going to have, um, you know, different senses of what God is calling people to do. Where's the objective bedrock with uh, religious inspiration? Um, you know, that itself is based upon experience, and individuals may have um, different experience, different experiences with what is what is mystical, with what is religious and supernatural. And so that can also cannot be um, the basis for the moral law. And in fact, Kant says that even Jesus Christ must be compared with our ideal 
of moral perfection before he is recognized as being perfect. So it's the ideal of moral perfection, which for Kant is rational. There's a rational law. And Jesus Christ is holy because he conformed to this rational law. Jesus Christ himself does not make the rational law holy. So Jesus Christ himself is not the source and, and the, the foundation, the fountain of holiness. It's the moral law, which is based upon reason. And in fact, Kant has this whole system of religion where he removes a lot of the um, doctrinal aspects and says that the central, central part of religion is the moral law based upon reason, and Jesus Christ is just um, an image or a symbol of that moral law. Okay? So, um, we must base the ethics on reason, and that's what Kant says, and so that's, that's very, uh, a very enlightenment way of thinking, Ethics is perhaps the stable base. I'm sorry, reason is probably the stable basis for ethics. Not religion, it's going to be reason. We can find a universal law, a moral law, based upon impartial reason. Not our own individual experiences, you know, uh, where you have something working out for you, you, you find uh, a certain thing pleasurable and therefore you call it good. No, it's based upon our, our, our impartial, universal, pure reason that is not tainted by individual biases and experiences. We all have this rational core where we recognize universal truths of ethics. Okay, so, um, you know, we have to uh, reorient ourselves in this new secular naturalistic framework, and you're going to have to abandon some of the classical uh, tradition in ethics. So the Platonic tradition is, you know, classical referring to the um, Greco-Roman um, roots of, of our civilization. Um, the Platonic view is that the good and the real are identical um, in the intelligible domain. So for Plato, you have these intelligible forms, which are beyond space and time, which are beyond the empirical domain, and they can only be thought about. They can be grasped by the intellect, and um, they're uh, universals. They're um, not individual things. They're actually um, ideas that um, are the, es- the essences of things. So there's an idea of goodness, and that's what's, um, what's real. Uh, what's ultimately real is the idea of good, not a, partic- a particular good thing, okay, and so um, this is what is good. For the Enlightenment, that won't work because Enlightenment wants us to focus on the natural world, not some intelligible domain beyond space and time. Okay? What Kant calls the noumenal domain. Noumenal, the root is nous, N-O-U-S, Greek for uh, mind, nous. Now, uh, Aristotle, his view is that goodness and ethics is based upon uh, teleology. Uh, teleology means um, purpose, and uh, so things have a purpose. Um, a violin, it has a purpose to make beautiful music. If you don't follow that purpose, the violin is not being used properly. If you use the violin to hit somebody, 
Um, you're not using the violin for its proper purpose. Um, a pen is meant to write. And if pen does not write, it's a defective pen. Okay? So uh, same thing with a, a, a human being. We have a uh, purpose. And um, that's what ethics is based upon. Are we fulfilling our purpose as a human being? Our rationality is what distinguishes us, distinguishes us as human beings. And so uh, rational activity, according to virtue, would be our purpose for Aristotle. If we're not being rational, if we're being impulsive, if we're being um, lethargic, if we're being kind of um, foolish, reckless, these are irrational states where we're not fulfilling our purpose as human beings. Now, um, what happens, though, uh, with uh, the Enlightenment? You can't even have teleology. You can't have purpose written in and built into the structure of being because now you have uh, what's called mechanistic causality. Um, mechanism is the opposite of teleology. Now, listen to this quote from um, Kant. Uh, this is him talking about mechanistic causation. Now, since it is entirely contrary to the nature of physical mechanical causes, the whole should be the cause of the possibility of the causality of the parts. Rather, the latter must be given first in order for the possibility of the whole to be comprehended from it. Okay, let me read that again because I want you to grasp this concept. Um, now, since it is entirely contrary to the nature of physical mechanical causes, that the whole should be the cause of the possibility of the causality of the parts, rather the latter must be given first in order for the possibility of the whole to be comprehended from it. Uh, so teleology is when the whole is the cause of the parts. Because in teleology, the end comes first. The goal comes first. So you make a um, desk. You're a carpenter making a desk. Well, the idea of the desk has to come first, right? Otherwise, you can't make it properly. And so it's teleological. The whole comes before the parts. Well, in mechanistic causation, the parts precede the whole. They're, they build up over time um, without having the idea of the whole guiding them. That's the naturalistic worldview where it's just one cause after the other and uh, they're building up over time, not following some end goal. It's just A causing B. These are natural causes um, and there is no teleology. There is no built-in purpose which things are trying to aspire to. It's just um, mechanistic causality. Um, the rock hits the ground. The, uh, the force acts upon the uh, moving object. That's mechanism in the Newtonian um, universe. So you can't have an intelligible domain, which is platonic, where the real is the good. The ultimately real is what is good. You cannot have a um, teleological idea of ethics. And so the basis of ethics becomes kind of difficult to find. Um, Kant says it's reason. And he has a beautiful, a, a great theory in his groundwork of the benefits of morals. Um, that is a great theory, but um, the question is, you know, you have now a mechanistic worldview. Can you have ethics? And you have a thinker by the name of Hobbes, okay? And basically, he's going to just take apart any notion of um, objective ethics. So you have a naturalistic worldview. There is no 
well, you know, there, there may be a God, but it's beyond our um, attempts of cognition. Uh, we're, we're dispensing with faith and using reason alone. Uh, and so Hobbes says, well, what is good is what we want. So I as an individual want certain things, and I as an individual do not want certain things. Uh, and certain things are bad for me. And that's what good and bad are. And because good and bad are based upon individual desires, there is no absolute rule of right and wrong. Okay? So take away the intelligible world of the forms where you have this abstract essence at the uh, intelligible level beyond space and time in this eternal, um, timeless realm of, of, of ideas for Plato. Get rid of the, um, the purpose-driven life of Aristotle and instead you have just mechanistic causation, man is a machine. Remember this vision of man that's not free. We're just part of this great, uh, we're a cog in this great machine of the universe acting according to totally deterministic laws. Well, guess what? There is no absolute right and wrong anymore. We just want certain things and certain things are uh, attractive to us and certain things are aversive to us and as individuals. And there is no absolute right and wrong. Uh, for Hobbes, there is no objective ethics. If I want um, to go to McDonald's, uh, that's what I want. That's what's good for me. And it doesn't mean it's good for you. And so there is no objective ethics. It's very, um, a very uh, kind of troubling view because, you know, what happens to right and wrong? Um, so whatever you want is good for you. Uh, that seems to be too permissive. Um, because someone could want something that really is very uh, selfish and and harmful to other people, so um, that seems that seems way too way way too permissive. So you have a guy by the name of um, Samuel Clark who is a rationalist. You have these thinkers who think that you could grasp uh, with your reason something in the nature of things. So we can see uh, a certain a kind of fittingness or um, um, certain properties in the nature of things that is independent of what we want. So, so we may want certain things, but they go against this rational order that we can perceive with our reason. Um, so um, ethics is like uh, the properties of lines or numbers. Um, just like you can, in your, with your reason, you can see that numbers have objective properties. They have mathematical attributes that um, are not that are independent of our opinion. Like your opinion about mathematics does not change uh, what the real answer is. Okay, so in the same way, you have um, ethics being grasped by reason. It's not dependent upon desire. This is against against Hobbes. There's an order in things. There's a a natural law we can grasp with our reason. And then you have a thinker like Wolf who says, well, there's perfection. We grasp in our, with our reason a perfection in things, and this is the basis of ethics. So this is, this is going against Hobbes, going against the idea that there's no objective ethics. It's all about individual des- desires, and it's all subjectivism. It's all just based upon the subject, and what, what works for you does not work for me. Well, for, for Clark and for uh, Wolf, um, you have uh, an awareness of an objective order grasped by the reason. Uh, a fittingness of things, a natural order 
that reason can grasp. Now, um, you have another kind of skeptic uh, asking about this structure and things, asking, can you get an ought from an is? Can you derive an ought from an is? In other words, what a, the, the fact that something is part of the structure of things, why does that make you have to do it? Okay, so he's, he was basically challenging the idea of a natural law, where what is natural is therefore good. Um, why is what is what is the basis for what, what we ought to do, right? So it seems like he's maybe perhaps right, because how can you get from the way things are to what we should do? Because maybe the way things are is not the way things should be. Why are they necessarily... Um, conflated? Why are they necessarily correlated? The way things are may not be the way things should be. And so it seems like an, an invalid uh, deduction to, to claim that um, the way things are is also the way things ought to be. You can't derive an ought from an is. So it's a very troubling um, challenge that Hume brings to um, these enlightenment attempts to ground ethics. Okay? And again, if you have that problem, then you just have um, subjectivism, where um, right and wrong are just um, feelings, and they're not about facts. When we have a, an ethical feeling, it's not, it's not disclosing to us a fact about reality. It's, it just, it's just the way we feel. So um, you don't like uh, abortion? Uh, that's just the way you feel. There is no objective order of things um, that makes that objectively right or wrong. It's the way you happen to feel. So if that's the case, then we can't ever have really um, a dialogue about, about ethics because, you know, it's just the way you feel and I feel, and really no one can be wrong because there's no, there's no independent standard of the way we, the way we feel. So uh, how can we have any kind of dialogue or um, a consensus building with ethics if it's just the way we feel? No one can be wrong, all right? If, if there's no independent standard, all right? What about beauty? What about aesthetic appreciation, uh, which means like the appreciation of artwork, the appreciation of uh, beauty in nature and art? Um, this is very interesting because, um, you know, when we appreciate um, beauty, we have a sort of state where it's called being disinterested. Uh, this means that we're not uh, trying to acquire it, all right? We're not trying to um, get something from it. So someone, like, looks at some land, and they may want to buy it and to cultivate it. But if you want to appreciate it for its beauty, you just kind of... Uh, stand back and, and just appreciate it for its own sake. When you appreciate something's beauty, you're not trying to acquire it. You're actually just contemplating it for its own sake. The object is in itself an end. It is not something that you are thinking about acquiring. All right, so maybe this is, is, is a source of a um, moral value because... Um, it's not 
um, just based upon our desires. When we appreciate beauty, we're appreciating things for their own sake and not for our sake. So we look at like a, a beautiful artwork. Um, we're not trying to acquire it. We're not trying to uh, you know, make money off of it. We are just enjoying it for what it is. And this is like a, um, perhaps a basis for ethics because through beauty, we can rise above our individual ego. Uh, we just appreciate things for their own sake and um, not try to just exploit them. All right, so if you're trying to exploit something for profit, you're not appreciating it for its beauty. You're using it as a means to an end. You're not contemplating it for itself. And this is kind of a precursor or a symbol of ethics because when you try to do the right, when you have a, when you have an ethical obligation, um, you're transcending your own personal ego. You have to follow the law uh, and do the right, do the right thing, even though you may not want to. Okay. So, um, now going back to Kant, um, for him, it's not perfection uh, or um, um, happiness that is the basis of, of ethics, but it's human freedom. It's our freedom, which means that we can act from reason alone. We're not controlled by our desires. We can use our reason to um, overcome our, our, our desires. And that's our freedom. And that is the basis, basis of ethics for Kant. How does, how does this work? Well, um, we're, we're, we're ethical when we are fully free. And we're fully free when we're acting from pure reason, uh, not from our, our, our desires, right? So we follow the moral law and, and reason has to be impartial. Uh, reason can't be uh, biased by our personal desires, Reason that is pure is going to consider our behavior from an objective standpoint. And reason will not allow us to do things that um, we would not uh, want to have done to ourselves. All right, because when reason is impartial, it's not going to give a certain privilege to our own, our own petty individualistic desires. When reason is impartial, it will consider um, an action uh, objectively as something that all rational beings have to um, affirm because reason that is impartial is not tied to a specific set of desires. It's independent of any desires. And so uh, for Kant, it is human freedom that is the center of ethics, the center of the moral law, um, because reason by itself demands to be universal, okay? Um, and we must act on maxims that can be universal, that all people can do. We can't say that we're going to do something that only one person or only ourselves can do, all right? So um, we're looking for um, a moral requirement in Kant Again, Kant is the great um, 
thinker who, I, I think he's, a, he's trying to deal with competing concerns in the Enlightenment. And I mentioned how he previously reconciles human freedom with the mechanical laws of science in the Enlightenment. He retains human freedom, right? Because there's this paradox in the Enlightenment of man becoming more self-assertive, more independent, both politically and philosophically, but then also the naturalistic determinism of the universe, which is uncovered through science, is stripping away man of the uh, soul and uh, the free will, which he had in the religious worldview. Now Kant is trying to reconcile both visions, both images of, of humanity. I said that I talked about in the pre- previous podcast. So for Kant, human freedom is the source of ethics. Let me explain this a little more because I want, I want this to, to be very clear. So for Kant, the um, primary ethical law is called the categorical imperative. And this is the law that we should act only on those maxims that should be uh, also universal laws. All right, so in other words, only act in a way that everybody else can act. All right, so you can't steal because if everybody stole, um, you yourself would suffer, and so you wouldn't want that done to yourself. If you if you if you think only from pure reason and not in a way that only has is clouded by your own personal desires, then you're going to be moral. So, and when you are thinking from pure reason, you are free. You are choosing to do things independently of whatever desires may be happening to you, okay? So um, we have moral requirements coming from our free will. These moral requirements override prudential judgments. So we have prudential judgments, which are basically for Kant, um, you know, it's 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 a means to an end, right? Um, what is the best means to take to a given end? Now, so the best way to become a doctor is maybe to apply to Columbia Medical School. All right. Do we have to do that? No, we can opt out. Um, That's something that we don't have to do. It's not a moral requirement on us because we don't have to be a doctor. Okay, we can do something else with with our lives. All right, but that's just a prudential judgment about the best means to do something. Now, our moral requirement is an obligatory end. We cannot um, treat other people as mere tools or means uh, to our ends. That's not something that we can opt out of, like, like a, prudential, um, a prudential reason. All right? Um, you know, doing something because it is just beneficial to you, not because it not because it is right. Alright? So Kant gives the example of a shopkeeper who charges the same price because he's getting a reputation from it, not because it is right. Alright, so prudential versus moral. Now, how does Kant manage to reconcile the freedom of humanity with the me- the mechanical laws of Newtonian science, because we're also objects in the world, and these laws constrain us too, and it seems like we're not free because we're actually products of 
the forces acting, acting upon us. How does Kant deal with this problem? Because it seems like if we're totally determined uh, and freedom is the basis of the moral law, then there is no moral law anymore because we're just totally determined. We're, we're machines that are cogs, again, in this deterministic Newtonian nature. Well, again, to reiterate what happened in the previous podcast, for Kant, the causal principle, the causal law that links us to um, the forces acting upon us, um, this is the structure of experience. It's a basis of experience, not something that characterizes reality in itself. So that we, we have to perceive things in time, and perception in time is based upon a causal law which links things over time. All right, It's kind of complex, but the way we experience things is causal. We see things as, as connected over time, uh, not as this um, random light show of different fragments of things. No, we see things as connected over time through causes. But these causes are not actually metaphysical features of the world apart from experience. There's the ways we experience things, but that does not mean that it's the way things actually are, independently of being experienced. And so in this separate domain, which is beyond experience, we can be free. So Kant limits the naturalistic domain of the Enlightenment to a possible experience. Nature is a structure of possible experience, not of reality in itself. Okay? So that's how he also integrates freedom by limiting this causal structure where we are just part of a mechanical flow of A causing B causing C, and there's no um, whole, the idea of the whole guiding the rest of it. It's just a mechanical step-by-step. Okay, well, that is our lesson in ethics in the Enlightenment today. I hope it was very interesting for you. I hope you stay tuned to our podcast. And and, um, again, if you want to reach out with comments, um, comment in the uh, podcast comments or send me an email. Uh, I'm available at dand325 at msn.com. That's dand325 at msn.com. Thank you.